Lot's wife, of course, was told not to look back where all those people in their homes had been. But she did look back, and I love her for that, because it was so human. She was turned to a pillar of salt, so it goes. People aren't supposed to look back. I'm certainly not going to do it anymore. I finished my war book now. The next one I write is going to be fun. This one is a failure, and had to be, since it was written by a pillar of salt. It begins like this. Listen. Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. It ends like this. Putty tweet? Two. Listen. Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Wednesday, July 31st, 2019, and today for 42 minutes, oh yes, we are looking back. In fact, we are traveling in time and space to 10050 Yellow Drive, Hollywood, California, in the summer of 1969. And we'll do so with the help of an old friend of the show, Andras Jones. Jones, an American television and film actor, author, and musician, is best known as the creator and host of Radio 8 Ball, a musical divination show in which participants' questions are answered by picking songs at random and interpreting the randomly chosen songs as the answer to the question. More information and current shows can be found at Radio8Ball.com. Of course, around here, we all know Andras as a contributor to the SyncBook, author of Accidental Initiations, and co-creator of SyncBook Radio's Synchronize. On the musical front, Mr. Jones spent most of the 90s touring and recording with his band, The Previous, and as a solo artist. But coming this August 8th and adding to his impressive catalog of recordings is All You Get, the latest LP from Andros, featured most recently as the oracle fodder for the Lodge 49 episode of Radio 8 Ball. More information about this and all you can get can be found at Radio8Ball.com, to which we'll link. I think it's been a few years since we spoke last to Andros. Back on episode number 254 in 2016, so I think we will have some catching up to do. How are you doing tonight, Andros? Uh, I'm doing great, and I just, I always dread people's introductions of me and what I do, because they either get stuff really wrong, or they talk about the wrong stuff, or they mispronounce things, and that was the best one I've ever, like, of course it was, because we know each other, but damn, it's just nice to have someone, like, even just explain Radio 8 Ball just sticking to the script. It's just like, if you just say the words, then it explains it, but everyone tries to paraphrase it, and then they get lost, and then they're so confused that they don't know how to do anything. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be back home. (laughs) Great. Well, I don't even know where to start, but... I mean, what started it all for me was Tarantino, Los Angeles, Charlie Manson. Why am I always Mansonized in the realm of sync? I don't know, but uh, I'm. It, it, I don't. I, I get why you're having that sync because I have been having a really 
amazing once upon a time in Hollywood adventure around that film that I've been posting about. So that's, uh, it's funny. I thought that it would have been that Alan Abadessa has, uh, that he edited the video for the single of, from my new record, all you get. And, uh, so I thought that might be your entree, but we, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, hesitant to talk about the film once upon a time in Hollywood, because I think it's, so, uh, yeah, I just don't, I don't want to give I have my criticisms. I don't want anyone to have to deal with later uh, until later because they're very small and that, like, and there's all these people making these big grand criticisms about it that I think are, well, you know, they're justified. I like that Quentin Tarantino, like Kubrick is with the, one of these directors who you can guarantee that everything they come out with is going to make somebody mad. And so that's great. But, uh, but it's so, it's, I think it's so good. Like I wouldn't want anyone to tell me anything about Barry Lyndon or the shining if I had a chance to see them when they were coming out. But I can tell you, I've had an amazing, I got to go see it at Quentin Tarantino's theater, which is new Beverly theater. So like I, I saw you say that on Facebook and I didn't, it's not the theater that, that Margot Robbie goes to in the film to watch the record. No, no, crew. that's the Bruin in uh, in Westwood. He, this is one of the things I always I liked. I, I mean, I always liked anyone who I always like anyone who's a smart writer. So I, I, uh, I, I have enjoyed Tarantino's work, but I sort of fell in love with him as a human being when he bought the new Beverly theater, the new Beverly or the new Beverly cinema, the new Beverly cinema was a place that I learned about a lot of film. And I guess he, and it makes sense. It's the, it was the used to be theaters in every town, like in every big city like this, where they would show double features and they'd show like the big sleep and Maltese Falcon and uh, the graduate and cool hand Luke. And Smokey and the Bandit 1 and Smokey and the Bandit 2. They just do weird double feet, like old run double features. And you could get a film education at these places. And I guess at the same time I was going there, Tarantino was going there, and they were about to go out of business, I guess, uh, like a little under a decade ago. And so Tarantino bought the theater. And for the most part, he just sort of was doing his own thing and sort of was kind of hands off, did some screenings there, maybe programmed some weeks. Uh, but I guess at some point in the last couple of years, he's taken on full on. He's a fear. It's it. He runs his prints. He, he programs the whole, like during the making of once upon a time in Hollywood, he was programming the whole, uh, like every week, every day, like they do double features for three days, three days, and then two days. And they do midnight features and they do daytime shows for kids and it's all film. And it's like, it's, it's the perfect thing. And so you have it like one of the great directors, you know, in history has their own movie theater. And if you live in LA, you can go and watch the prints that he owns shown on a big screen in his house. And then to go see his movie in his house, that was amazing. And 
I've been following this new film, this film podcast that's new to me called the Pure Cinema Podcast, and I highly recommend it to people. And they somehow, I haven't got to the end of the podcast, but they somehow got in with the new Beverly Cinema, and they had Tarantino on recently, and he was talking about how the last two months of programming there has really been designed almost as a course so that people can get all the references in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And even just listening to the podcast of him talking about that, I think is if you haven't, se- if you've seen the film or if you haven't seen the film or if you've seen it and you're going to see it again, like, like I am, I haven't seen it the second time. I highly recommend the Pure Cinema Podcasts uh, interview, like their, their most recent session with Quentin Tarantino. And he goes through their ca- the new Beverly Cinema's calendar and talks about why this Jane Fonda double feature is important and why this Natalie Wood or this Tab Hunter or George Hamilton or, you know, on and on. And like, it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's so, and it, it should be, I mean, maybe this is, I'm sorry, I'm talking your ear off, but I know we only have 42 minutes. Uh, and uh, you, you mentioned this film. So I, uh, or you didn't even mention the film. You just mentioned Cielo Drive. Uh, I did. And so what's amazing is I knew enough to really appreciate that movie. However, in all the years of Always Record, I never went into that rabbit hole. The, uh, the Charles Manson, the, you know, the Roman Polanski, like the whole David Plate trip. Well, I, what, this is what, I don't know if you've, Feel this, but to me, all you need is a passing knowledge of the Manson murders to get what you need to get out of this film. For yeah, that. yeah, I agree. The, it's really the Hollywood, like if you don't, if you haven't seen The Great Escape and you don't know who Steve McQueen is, and you haven't seen Sergio Leone films, and you're not aware of like the the Hollywood that they're that's dying that they're covering the genre Hollywood. Yeah. That's where I feel like I think you can get it. I think you can watch the film and just enjoy it as that's all just sort of random shit. But if but it's all grounded in a reality, a cinematic reality reality that if you know it, it's you know, it's like reading a Gore Vidal book. If you don't like you could probably read a Gore Vidal book and not know about American history, but if you do, it's going to pop. But so the the interesting thing to me is then actually for what it, what it did to me is I'm just curious about, like I'm going into that for the first time, you know, so the movie was the gateway into, to like, and it's a mess as far as like, I can see why, like, it's just, uh, you know, a, a conspiracy magnet where, I found a, there's a there's a new book that just came out that's talking about you know the the problems with um with the helter skelter case and motive and things and so it just seems like it it was a really interesting entree to me into this whole realm that I was never interested in before now and I, and I suppose that's why I mean, I didn't intend for this to happen. I was curious about the movie, and I was curious because I knew that it was such a 
big deal to Alan, Bill, and David, and and they seem kind of blasé about it, and so it's like, all right, well, I guess about the movie, not about the movie, about the idea of it being like some kind of ritual for them to participate in, and that's how I felt. Like this is Tarantino, it's cinema, like what you were doing. That felt like, oh yeah, yeah, you're seeing it at his theater, the the Wrecking Crew posters on the wall. You you know, it's like. You're participating with it I somehow. Mean, it's great. Well, because the theater is right down the street from El Coyote. So there's a scene in the movie where Sharon Tate comes out of El Coyote and says, are they doing an opening at the dirty theater down the street? And uh, JC brings like, yeah. And she's like, do dirty movies have openings? And everyone in the theater laughs because that dirty movie theater is now the new Beverly Cinema. And so... You can, you can see it from El Coyote. So you come out of the theater and you look down the street and there's El Coyote. You know, this was one of the fun things. So in the theater, Tarantino show, at the, which you see it at the New Beverly, they show a short that's a scene from Bounty Law with uh, DiCaprio and Michael Madsen that they show clips from in the film. And they show the snack ad that shows on the drive-in movie theater when Brad Pitt goes on his long drive home at the end he pulls into the movie theater and they're showing that and they showed the and they showed the previews for the wrecking crew Rosemary's Baby and CC and company which are all referenced in the movie and again this is all from his own collection so it just it felt it was the most organic cinematic experience I've ever had in my life. I was told like, and I was so lucky. I mean, I, I wasn't, I guess I was lucky. It was synchronistically lucky. Like I saw a thing saying, Oh, these tickets are going to go on sale. And I just happened to, I set an alarm and I was in a place in my travels where it made sense. And at noon, when they went on sale, I went on and tried to get for the day before they sold out so fast for weeks and I I managed to get like four o'clock tickets in the afternoon for the second day showing and uh yeah just the energy there was amazing and but it just yeah everyone this is how inside those people are because you, you'll you and Will Morgan will appreciate this I was standing in line for the snacks and they started running the program and I felt like we, I almost missed everything Except there was this one woman who was like, I'll save your space so you can watch. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah. And I went and watched. I got to watch the whole Bounty Law thing. And then I came in. I missed the CC and company preview. And she was like, I was like, thank you so much. She's like, oh, we know who you are. I'm like, if you know who I am, (laughs) (laughs) then this is an obscure fuck. And you're at this movie. Because you're not just a horror fan. If you're a film fan here to see this film and you know who the fuck I am, then <laughs> you're swimming in some deep waters. Well, the, the Leonardo character was pretty sweet. I, I, liked, I liked him. Oh. It was, he was just so human. Oh, yeah. And Brad Pitt was such a movie star. <laughs> I mean, every I thought there was, I have, okay, you know what? I'm going to give my one quibble here. 
because I might get some feedback because I want to know that I'm wrong about this, but there is something in that movie that is so wrong for me. And it's totally technical, so I don't think this is going to be a spoiler, other than that if you hear this, it might make you hate the movie if, because it almost ruins it for me. It's so such a little thing. So if you don't want to hear this, tune it out. Skip ahead. Okay. Between you and me, Doug? Yeah. It really bugs me that Kurt Russell is a character in the movie. He is also the narrator of the film. Oh. <laughs> I've never seen a film where the film is narrated by an actor playing a character in the movie, an iconic actor, but it is not, there is no way that that character is narrating the film. I mean, I buy that Sam Elliott is narrating The Big Lebowski. Sure. I don't buy, or I need Tarantino to, I wish I could pull, I wish I had been, at, if I had been at the, if he had been at the screening I was at, that I would pull him aside and I'd be like, I need to know, you did not do this accidentally. Why would you do this? Is he telling us this story? Huh. I mean, is that, is he, the, is, he the, is he the narrator? Is that character the narrator? Uh, it bugs me. It really. <laughs> what do you think about that, Doug? I, you just blew my mind. I mean, I didn't even, I registered that on a subconscious level, but I didn't, it wasn't anything that, I mean, that's you from a framing perspective. Yeah. Is this, is this, huh? And, and Kurt Russell was just, uh, what is he like a showrunner or? Well, you know, he's the stunt, he's the stunt coordinator. So he's also kind of, he's a parallel for his character in, he's like the ineffectual, Older, but in an earlier time version of his character from Death Proof, who's the scary stunt driver who kills all those girls and that gets beaten and gets the shit beaten out of him by Zoe Bell, who is now playing his wife in that scene, in the scenes he has with uh, in the in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Brad Pitt and. Yeah, I don't want to give too much away. But, but yeah, so do I you mean, think this is a film? So like David Lynch does that where he's playing with archetypes, but then he's also playing with like actors and the actors saying like just casting that person in the role is saying something as loudly as the archetype. OK, well, then. So if that's the case, then. Then Tarantino is basically is using Kurt Russell. As this time-traveling, murderous stuntman? <laughs> oh, huh. Who, is, in the end, always gets his ass kicked by Zoe Bell. In one way, like, in Death Proof, she actually beats him to death. Spoiler alert, sorry. And in this film, she just, he's, she, hen she doesn't, she doesn't, what is it like? What what does she do? It's not henpecking. She is just she bad. She out badasses him. Like he's the badass stunt coordinator, but he's like, I'm sorry, honey. I'm sorry. Okay, I'll, I'll you know because <laughs> you don't fuck with Zoe Bell because she because she killed him in the last movie that they were in together. Uh, I don't. Know. Yeah, I hope that you know. I have to believe that Tarantino's up to something, and actually, just talking with you about this right now makes me feel a little bit better about it. I was, it was really sitting, uh, can we end this now? 
Yeah. This is we, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so LA. So uh you you over the years you've gone back and forth between Olympia and LA. When did you are you are you I'm still I'm still going back and forth. Are you but you're back. living in I, LA I, right now? I'm in LA right now, but I my my mailing address, I live my my stuff is in Olympia. I live in Olympia. I don't have it I don't have a place here. I stay with friends. I I have different places I crash. Um So then you record Radio 8 Ball wherever you're at or primarily yeah. in LA? Primarily in LA, but at different studios all over the place. Yeah, like the most recent one we did that we're in the middle of right now with Lodge 49, which is something I actually I'd love to talk. I think the sync community you're going to go nuts for this show. Did you watch any of it? I I watched a little bit of the first episode and I can I'm I'm curious to see why. Yeah. It's it's a it's it's not it's not a <laughs> I wonder I just I'm curious how things like this get made because it's like boy this is not like anything you've seen before. But then you feel yeah, well, the esoteric underpinnings kind of informing it. Which makes it yep. mysterious and, and interesting. Well, I it comes out tomorrow, August first. I did this episode of Radio Eight Ball with the creator of the show, the music supervisor, and three of the cast members, including David Yuri, who uh Sinkheads may remember from one of our Sync Summits or one of our last Sync Summits at Olympia. I think the last Sync Summit, no. One of our last, not the last. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, we talk about it. You know, he's an author. It's really interesting. He's an author. He's got his own voice. He came up with this this pilot, and they went with it. They liked it and gave him, let him do it. And it's like, it's a very slow-moving show in the sense of, there's not a bunch of you know, there's not like no one gets killed in the first episode or the second episode like it's not a it's not about explosions and killing and you know it's a very literary and esoteric kind of a soap opera but in the most uh it's really really endearing and it's endearing and it makes it the world you want to live in but for sinkheads and this is just really rich and thoughtful in terms of dealing with the same kind of trying to make entertainment out of esoteric imagery and ideas without, you know, without delegitimizing them or insulting them or making fun of them in any way. Um, Yeah. It's just, it goes, it runs deep. I'm so once our community, that community gets a hold of this show, there are, there's just a lot of stuff that people are, this is going to show up in sync films for the next you know, decade, just because there's so much stuff that you can grab about alchemy and about Freemasonry and about, uh, well, I'm, I'm so curious to, you know, what did you think about the little bit you saw? I, so that's just it. I mean, I, it really took me off guard because I think I'm guessing that it's even though we do have kind of one protagonist that's put forward in the in the initial episode the the surfer guy who clearly has you know like 
right off the bat you learn that you know like his basically his whole world fell apart yeah his father i mean yeah his father died he got bitten by a snake and now he's using his metal detector to search for stuff on the beach and he finds a ring that he tries to pawn and the pawn shop guy says oh no this is actually for this lodge you should go check it out and then synchronistically his car breaks down in front of the lodge he walks into the lodge and it's just like this sort of decrepit place where people just sort of use it as a free bar but then by showing up he starts to accidentally initiate the place into its previous state and that's where the series takes off and like that is i mean that is just that little opening is so rich with archetypal meaning right the the curiosity to me more is is the LA theme that's happening because not long before that I was also really I don't know what, the the movie Under the Silver Lake did you see that one Oh yes I again they are completely uh, in our lane that is a film that is I mean come on that is uh <laughs> Well, so that that one is just it, like it's doing a number of things, and you don't know if it's doing it well or. I mean, both uh, "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood" and "Under the Silver Lake" are romps, man. They are a ride, and you're on it, and you just don't have any idea yeah. what's going on. What's but you're just enjoying the ride. But then yep. th- there's so much depth and layers that you know that if you explore this thing. That it's it's gonna it's gonna be giving for quite some time, um, but with with under the silver lake there is this it's this it's like an L.A. vibe and it's paranoid and there's mystery and and there's things that are not quite uh, straight with well, reality. I, well, let me tell you, uh, let me tell you a little. Once upon a time in Hollywood, your Humble Radio 8 Ball host, Andras Jones, found himself working for a company in L.A. as a manager of actors and writers and directors. And uh, I found myself with a client named Greg Wayne, a musician and an actor, really uh, charming, talented guy. I've had, you know, interesting success in, in different, in all kinds of fields, like the kind of success that would seem like success if you weren't living in LA, but in LA, you know, a few gigs here, a few gigs there just doesn't, you know, just doesn't pay the bills forever. It might, people will be surprised to know. Anyway, that's a little peek behind the curtain. And then, uh, and we were actually working on a pilot for a series that he had, he had this idea for a show about kind of not, very different from Lodge 49, but not entirely different in that the host is sort of like this drunken fool. This guy who gets, uh, when he gets drunk, ghosts talk to him. And he can do all these, he can predict all these, he have all these predictive powers. He becomes this a great detective because, but he has to be drunk all the time in order to see these ghosts who give him this information. Anyway, we were working on this. Meantime, he plays a role in Under the Silver Lake. Do you remember this scene? Uh, the, our hero shows up at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery 
chasing the pirate guy. Yeah. And the and he walks up and there's these the two uh, what we find out later are the two prostitutes hanging with this dude. And then they all run off and get in a limousine with the pirate guy, and it's revealed that they were leaning on Hitchcock's grave. Okay. I don't know if you remember this scene. Well, Greg Wayne was my friend, was my client in between them. And we were in, we were, you know, all, you know, waiting for this film to come out because they thought, oh, he's in this cool new movie under the Silver Lake. The role didn't end up being huge, but we, you know, you never know when it's that kind of role how it's going to be featured. And before the film came out, he committed suicide. Oh. And watching that film and all the death and all the suicide and all the, well, not suicide, the death and the murder and the, I don't know, the, the nihilism of it. Yeah. It really, I've had these experiences a few times in my life where I'm viewing something that if I didn't have this one piece of information that's very personal to me, I would be viewing this in a very different way. But because of the way I was viewing it, and when he showed up in front of the Hitchcock grave, knowing that that is something that we would have laughed about together. And then from there, where the film goes, to the nihilistic places it goes, just to give you an idea, this is, again, it's almost like, well, it is. The, the, it's like talking about El Coyote and Sharon Tate and the New Beverly Cinema, except that I didn't know Sharon Tate, so I can be kind of cynical about it. I can think, wow, that's cool. That's a jazz. That's that's groovy that that happened. Uh, or that, that Tarantino was able to play with that connection. But that's kind of like when you ask about Hollywood and being in Hollywood and once upon a time in Hollywood, I think that's part of it. And I think that's maybe why... I hope that's why people who did know Sharon Tate can watch that film and be sort of moved by how sweet it is to her and how, and actually be reminded how all of the hand wringing about her is, was like showed less concern for her than this film. That people are all going to be up in arms about, you know what I mean? Hmm. Well, let's let's talk about Natalie Wood then. I mean, so we okay, yeah. So that's a, like, that's uh, a perfect. Under the Silver Lake is, I think her name is like Joyce Gaynor. It's like a silent movie actress, and then you have Sharon Tate. Janet and... Gaynor, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, Janet Gaynor, you're right. Uh, Natalie Wood. So what what is it? What is it? You know, besides the, you know, just the the basic pun of her name and that she's from hollywood oh well none of that yeah there's not is like i'm yeah i'm not really i know people are very interested in the the mystery of her death i'm not so much i am you know i to me what's i when natalie wood died i remember i was it was i was living in the same house i was living in and we didn't live there for a long time when I, where I was when John Lennon died. And so I kind of think of them as being similar. Also, uh, well, yeah, those, those, 
yeah, and they, they were probably a couple of years apart, but when you're a kid, these things blend together. And I remember my mom watching it and she said this thing of like, oh, well, Natalie was always us, you know, when we were a kid. And because my mom was born in 41, uh. Natalie was born in 37. And so, you know, she when we, when we were kids, she was the kid from Miracle on 34th Street. Well, I, and see, I didn't put that together. Like, I, I was aware of her, but she wasn't someone that necessarily resonated per se. But she was, mm -hmm. you know, she's like a Forrest Gump where she's just, she's in everything. Well, she's always, well, this is, it's funny. If you listen to the Pure Cinema podcast with Tarantino, they didn't talk enough about her. <clears throat> I don't think that that's, he's necessarily in her wheelhouse, but in, or she's in his wheelhouse. But he said, and it's something that I've been saying, like, this is why I know we get along, man. Because he's like, the thing about Natalie Wood is like, we think of her as, as like, oh, she was the girl with uh, with James Dean and with Warren Beatty and with Steve McQueen and with uh, John Wayne, Robert, Robert Redford. Well, Re Wayne is a different thing, but like all of these young movie stars that she was with, they were putting the studio was putting them with her like she was the movie star in Rebel Without a Cause, introducing James Dean. She was the movie star in Splendor in the Grass, introducing Warren Beatty. She was the movie star in This Property is Condemned, introducing Robert Redford and Charles Bronson. You know what I mean? Like, <clears throat> the, the people who we think of as, like, the, where, of her as the co-star, too. Right. At the time, she was, they were the ones we were being introduced to. And so there's this way, well... I think one of the great qualities of an actor is the ability to make their partner look good. And she was great at that. And Alan and I, well, I came across something in my research for the, for the video that Alan edited, uh, which was that her very first film, and I really recommend people check this out. It's called Tomorrow is Forever. It's from about a year and a half before she did or maybe a year before she did miracle on 34th street it's her first film like so much of her stuff it, there's an there's a water and nautical element she the first time we see her she's fleeing she's eight years old she's fleeing nazi germany in a film in 1946 in the arms of orson wells and she's speaking with a german accent she's an eight-year-old kid she has some very emotional scenes to play and all of her scenes are with Orson Welles. And this is a time when Orson Welles was notorious for, I'm putting quotes around, for directing scenes in films that he was acting in just because he'd kind of creatively bully whoever the studio had was put in charge of that film. He's acting and he's like, well, what if you lit it this way? What if you, you know, can you see a camera move like this? And who's going to argue with Orson Welles at that point? And with all of that in mind, and if you watch this film, there are some shots that look like they're right out of Magnificent Ambersons. And it makes me think that he did that. But I am 100% sure that he directed Natalie Wood in all of her scenes. They're in all of their scenes together. They rehearse together. Whether or not the other guy's directing, saying cut and print or whatever, her first time on film, she's being directed and working with the master 
of American cinema at the height of his powers. And then that's just right through till the end, till she ends with Christopher Walken at the beginning of his rise to becoming an iconic actor. And it just never ends. She's just right on the pulse. You know, she's in a film in 1960, early 60s, with Steve McQueen called Love with the Proper Stranger, where she's a young woman seeking an abortion. You know, uh, she's, in a, the, she's in Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice, as a, a, like in a film that explores open relationships. She plays Helen Gurley Brown in a very, uh, I think, a very bad film with Tony Curtis, but still playing this feminist author. And we didn't, yet we never talk about her. I think she's endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I don't disagree. So then the choices, how much, how much direction? So that's, what's interesting about like a sync film. Oftentimes like the, the person who's, you know, undergoing a study of someone or some theme or whatever it is, they, they start, like putting clips in folders and just building things up and seeing what's what's attracting what what's the strange attractor and and you know what is it adding up to did you give like time codes to alan or did you say you need to look at these films or you know so how did that collaborative process work no no yeah alan was like i don't have time to totally go down the rabbit hole with her so he was acting almost like a straight editor in this instance then. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, no. I would not call it a straight editor. I would call it a very bent editor. Um, in <laughs> he, the, get bent, Alan. In the, well, in the sense, no, I mean, really, it's why I could, like, so the, how this came to be was that I have this song called Natalie Wood Said that is the single off of my new record. And one of the people I'm working with was like, well, you should make a video. It's just eat. And he's like, Oh, it's just easy. Just grab a few clips of Natalie Wood and cut them together and just make a little video. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, yeah, it's not, it's not that easy. I'm going to do that. Yeah. It's not going to be like that. I know if you don't think like us, then you can do that. I just think, Oh, it's just, I'm just grabbing a few clips and running them in loops and playing the song and then something will happen. But I was just like, I, I got it. This has got to be a sync film. And I asked, you know, it's like, it's like a parable. Like I asked Alan once and he returned me down. And I asked Alan a sec and a second time and offered him a little money and he turned me down. And then I, I asked him a third time and I think he was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and I offered him more money and he said, yes. And, still whatever i paid him like i the reason it had to be him is because he got obsessed i did the work i went and found it and then he put in the kind of work that someone who cares about this art form does which is obsessive and super detail oriented and you know i if you ever talk with him about it he had the same he had that you know that creative journey that a lot of us have when we're you know we're he was working on it and he was pursuing stuff and it ended up putting a lot of work going in a direction that ended up not being the right direction and then course corrected and felt lost in it. And then we found like these little nodes and these little things that worked and then it all clicked into place. But yeah, in my research, it was just overwhelming. 
I just looked for any place where she was drinking or drowning or in water, because that's sort of what's referenced in the song. But it's more about me drinking and drowning because I can't live up to the uh, the false. Uh, I don't want to say that the false ideals that she helped to set up by adoring the movie star men that she adored and the way she adored them, particularly based upon this line in Rebel Without a Cause where she's talking about James Dean and she's like, yeah, he's sincere. That's the main thing. And it's like, it isn't, but you can go through a lot of your life thinking that being sincere really is the main thing. And it will lead you to be uh, to be drunk and drowning in many ways. And that's where the song came from. And so that's what I was looking for. But then obviously when you start doing a sync film and doing the research, you find a lot more than, you know, you stare into the abyss and it stares back into you. Yeah. Which is why it's fun to have a friend who gets it like Alan to work on a project where it's just great to work with someone who, you know, is going to work as hard as you do on something because they just want it to be right. You know, regardless of how long it takes or whatever they're getting paid. You know, it's the, it's one of the joys in the world to work with people like that. Well, I think earlier, it must've been earlier this spring, I had Jake Kotza back on the show cause it was, it was the anniversary of the sinkhole. And, and, and you know, as, as you said, when we first got on, hasn't everyone changed? Hasn't everything changed? I mean, so what is your take on the sync community at this point? Like, it is strange because it has it has kind of scattered a little bit. I don't I don't know that it's it's gone forever, but like an animating kernel or you know whatever it is, you know, we're kind of in a. I don't know what what kind of just downtime or something or you know what is your take on things? Oh man, I wish I, I wish you hadn't asked me that. Um, <laughs> you don't uh, you don't have to answer if you don't want. <laughs> I'll 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 say it as I'll say it uh, in the most well in the in the best way I can say it, which is. After the election of 2016, I had a lot of people who blamed me for Donald Trump, people in my world who blamed me personally for the election of Donald Trump because I supported Bernie Sanders, even though I live in Washington state, a state that went for Hillary Clinton. And I've spent a lot of this last, you know, many years, like trying to like, confront this idea that we can blame our neighbors and states like that we like that the electoral college and all this can allow us to like blame our neighbors for things that they have no actual control over and yet i don't think i think we are living in a time of of scapegoating and the scapegoating impulse is very hard to uh, avoid and I'm not immune to it. And so I too have a rational people 
I have a rational belief that uh, that lead me to blame people unfairly for the horrible, apocalyptic, brutal, racist, fascistic times in which we live. And for me, that irrational blame falls pretty heavily on the sink community. I know that people are working on that. Like, it feels like what we're doing got co-opted. You know, that we, whatever, whatever magic that we found and we're all sharing got co-opted by the alt-right and became this meme magic or whatever. I well, mean, I don't, no, wait, wait, this is, this is why, like, I don't, like, we have to hold, this is the reason I blame, reason I, I blame, if I, they, I rationally blame our community is that I, I like, I just don't want to, I that that passive language that we got co-opted. No, well, so, so we knew there were, no, we knew there were Nazis in our midst. We knew that there were people saying hateful, terrible things. We knew that there are people who we liked who were saying, well, maybe there's this, there's one, there's good people on both sides. We never said and good people on both no, sides. No, no, but we did, yes, we did, we definitely, you know, I, I mean, it's, I was, here's the thing, because of, no, I hear because you. of who I, I am, you. because of my personal way of being, I was, found myself confronting it a lot. And I found that most of the time when I confronted it, it ended up being turned on me instead of on people who were openly espousing an affinity for Adolf Hitler. And, and so those people, like, well, people it's archetypal. It's no, blah, those blah, blah, people you know, were so, certainly there. But thinking about it from like a, instead of like individuals and more like a, a larger flowing thing, like that maybe this was going through. I just I'm, I'm telling you it's irrational it's unfair but I wonder uh, you know what it is? it's because I expected more of us and we for what we bit off we failed and I feel like we failed because we were hmm you know what, well, so here's the, the thought I'm having mind is weak and cowardly and not grounded in anything other than the same stuff that we would make fun of, except that we had, we used bigger symbols, you know, bigger, and that's why I want, I, it's unfair to expect more of other people because ultimately, and this is why I don't like the passive language about it. Sure. I, because when, because when I go to bed at night, I don't, when I'm really thinking, I don't blame you guys. I blame myself, and everyone should. I wonder I, if we're built yeah. to fail. I don't know that we can do anything but fail. Like the uh, the cli no, the no. climate thing is haunting me right now. Like the idea of of climate change, and there's it's really coming to a head now. And I think for a long time people personalized this that if we just change our personal behaviors. We can beat this thing, but these forces are so big. Like that's how I'm feeling. Yeah, and and yeah. so no, we're we're yeah, we're the victims of a psyop. There's no doubt about it. You know, it is. There are bigger things. You're right. 
You're right. But you're, guess- you no, but you're right that we had like uh, early on we knew what was going on with various members of you know people that we gave a voice to and we we didn't call them out or shut that voice down immediately because we thought that what they were seeing saying in the arena of what we we're talking about was valid whereas their personal political beliefs didn't enter into it even though where we ended up was a completely tribal political space at the end without basically the arena that we cared about is like gone and it's just it that happens in a lot of areas it's not this isn't the first time it's not you know and it's you know that's to me it's like when i really dig deep the it's not that i blame like i'm not responsible like i'm not responsible for trump but i am responsible for my own hubris that makes me think that because i'm involved in something magical that we are really going to be behave like the archetypes that we aspire to be and the fact is that without lineage without uh teachers without you know without a you know a community that like has some sort of passing down between elder from elders where young people listen to where we have elders that we want to listen to and elders who are worth listening to and we can build up something that you know that approximates what you know what the you know like what really it means when you say community as opposed to a bunch of people sort of doing the same thing together but you know we just don't even know what that means and so when we do have these little moments where it feel like like when we have these moments like the sync summits where it feels like there's a a cohesion and we're all in agreement it makes you think like oh this is it this you know this is the revolution and and that you know that's just that's a disillusionment that everyone has to have until you know i hope that i hope we have a i hope eventually there is a society i hope eventually that we can grow into elders who are better who can pass some things some things along and make something out of these horrific failures of our youth so yeah sorry i'm just I thought about it a lot, and I I was dreading talking about it, knowing we were going to do this. Well, that was forty two minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Well, that's perfect. Yes, you've been listening to Andras Jones and Forty Two Minutes Production of SyncBook Radio on the SyncBook.com. For more information about his work, check out his website RadioEightBall.com, which will link for more information about the SyncBook. Our guests check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently, all the SyncBook radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And hey, you're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. There's nothing much to do except to hang around half noon. By the refrigerator Thinking about food And wondering what am I doing here The answer would be drinking too much beer 
And wondering if I've been too sincere with you But now I'm 